0: Thank you Pensacola Ensemble. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 in our Bibles this morning. I'm glad that we're able to gather together freely. Was the music an encouragement to your heart this morning? Was I hope that you stopped by. You're welcome to give them a hand. You can do that. That's fine. As you all were singing, I was uh, remembering back when I was a group leader, and my wife and I traveled, and we had uh, five ensemble members with us, and uh, I was remembering those young people, and I was thinking about the different churches, some of the different churches we were in, many different churches, and uh, as an ensemble leader, I was often very um, focused on my group, and executing, and them singing well, and us being personable, and ministering to people's needs, and I was in tune with people's needs as an ensemble leader, but as a pastor, um, now knowing to a different level the needs that are in this auditorium and hearing the songs that you were singing and the Bible truths you were singing, I was thinking of what a blessing you all are to our hearts. And you don't, you don't know us. You don't know the needs. Uh, but uh, that's what God does. He works through his people when we sing his truth, when we speak his truth, when we preach his truth, when we live his truth, God uses us and he wants to use us to minister and to serve other people and to encourage one another in the race of life. And no matter how long you've been saved, no matter if you're an ensemble member or whether a pastor or a deacon or a church member, man or woman, God wants to use you to be a great blessing to his people. And uh, let him do that. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're at this morning. We're studying through the book of Ephesians. I'm loving our study. I hope that you are as well. It's been convicting. Last week, we looked at the role of a wife. And, um, and as it's laid out in Ephesians chapter 5, this morning, we're going to look at the role of a husband. And, um, you know, if, if you're trying to understand marriage... If you if, if you have an idea of what marriage is, and it's extra-biblical, or it doesn't include the Bible, then you're going to miss the mark. This morning, I almost brought with me um, William's little bow. I was going to bring the bow and arrow, and I actually thought about taking a shot on the platform. I didn't bring it. You're probably not disappointed. Some of you are. Um, I was going to bring his little target. It's a cardboard cutout of a of a deer, a, a buck, and there are holes all in it from head to toe, Mr. Lunny. Uh, William shows no respect. We do have the goal, the target, of where he's supposed to shoot the deer, but he's happy no matter where he hits it, okay, in the leg, in the antler. It, some of you are looking at maybe like I'm um, mean to animals. This is a cardboard cutout of a deer, okay? Um, oh, by the way, we found a wedding band for a husband in the in the men's restroom, so... One of your wives will be happy if you'll collect this. Okay, I've got it. All right, so the, the cardboard cutout of the deer, and uh, I was going to bring it along, and, and then I was going to bring an apple after I took a shot and said, who wants to come up? Tim Maury, come up. No, um, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, William, he'll look out the back window, he'll look out into the garden, and he'll see the rabbits. Not in the garden, but outside of the garden. And he'll, and he'll start talking to himself. I'm going to get my bow and arrow, ELO, and, and I'm going to go out there and kill that wabbit. Okay, that's how he says it. And uh, he hasn't done it, nor is there any chance on this earth, at this time in his, his life, of killing, hitting anything he aims at, okay? He's not going to kill any wabbits. Um, but you know, if you're going to hit something in life, if you've got to have a target. You've got to aim at something. And as we're looking here in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about a marriage relationship. He's talking to wives. He's talking to husbands. And he really is laying out for us a target. And, And so if we're looking at our marriages, and we're looking at marriage without this passage in our minds, we're going to miss the mark, and we really don't know what a godly marriage looks like. And I mentioned last week you shouldn't determine what kind of a wife you ought to be or what kind of a husband you ought to be based upon your experience alone or based upon the examples that you have seen in your life. You you and I, as God's people, need to look to the Word of God to find out what kind of a marriage God wants us to have. What is your blueprint? What pattern are you following? What is your blueprint for marriage? If your marriage is operating outside of the truths we're going to look at this morning, it's failing. It's failing. You say, well, it's not failing. We've been, we've been married for 50 years and we're still living under the same roof. I suppose that is some measure of success. But as I mentioned last week, it's possible to tie a, a dog and a cat together by their tails and flip them over the col- clothesline And you may have a union, but you do not have harmony, and you do not have unity. And as I mentioned last week, there are too many marriages that end in divorce, but there are many marriages that have not ended in divorce, but they have ended. People are living in the same house. They may even share the same room, but they are not united, and they are not living in harmony. And that's not God's will. God's will for his people, for a local church, is harmony and unity. God's, God's plan, his blueprint for you as a husband and a wife is harmony and unity. God's blueprint for you as an employer and an employee is there to be some element of harmony. As per- for parents and children, that there be some element of harmony. And that's all in the text that we're, we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. So if you're understanding what Ephesians 5 says about marriage, some do not understand it. They reject the idea of a wife submitting herself to her own husband. Others, other men reject the idea of loving their wives like Christ loved the, loves the church and gave himself for it. Well, that's failure if you're rejecting God's blueprint. But it would also be failure to know God's blueprint, uh, to agree with God's blueprint, but to, to try to accomplish what God desires in our flesh. And before we read our text this morning, I want to remind you of the context of, our, of this passage. And in the context of this passage, he's telling us, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Don't be intoxicated with alcohol whereby you lose control of your flesh. He says, instead, be filled, be controlled by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, let Him have control of your life. Yield control of your life to Him every day. Say yes to Him, God who lives within you. If you're a child of God, say yes to Him, and sir and ma'am, you will be the husband. You will be the wife that God wants you to be. You say, Seth, I I'd grow up a great example. My mom and dad divorced when I was young, some of you might say in this room. Some of you in this room might say, I never knew my dad. I never knew my dad. Seth, I don't have a good example. If you are a child of God, and you will say yes to the Spirit of God, you will be the husband that God intends for you to be. Let's look at our passage, Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to begin reading in verse number 25, Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 5, verse number 25. He says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us this morning. Father, I know you desire to Father meet needs in this room. Father, there are some in this room who are not yet married, and that's their plan. Uh, Lord, teach us by your word that they might know how to be the husband or the wife that they ought to be. There are others in this room, Lord, who have been married a long time, 50 years, some 60 years. Father, I pray that no matter how long we've been married, we'd never give up on having the marriage that you have designed. The marriage that you desire for us to have. And, Father, we know how we can have that. We can have it by saying yes to your Spirit, but teach us, teach us the details. Show us the plan, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I, I want to emphasize again before we get into our passage that it's impossible, it's impossible to have the marriage that God wants without saying yes to the Spirit of God. You can have a counterfeit, and people do. People can have a counterfeit marriage. It can look good on the outside. Anybody can act to a degree for a certain amount of time. Anybody can get dressed up and look apart. But what God is after, and my heart's desire for you and for me, for our marriages, for our families, for us as God's people, is for us to have a legitimate, sincere, genuine, God-pleasing marriage. And that's what God wants. That's what God wants. He's, and my, my goal this morning is not that I can give you uh, four tips on, on how to make, it, make yourselves look or make me look like I have a successful marriage. That's, that's really failure. That's just acting. But God wants it to be sincere. He really does. He wants it to be sincere. And the only way for that sincerity is for us to die to self, to say no to self, our flesh, which is wicked, and to say yes to the Spirit of God on a daily basis. And so uh, a husband who's loving his wife like Christ loves the church is a man who is filled, controlled by the Spirit of God, God's Spirit in his life. Look again in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25, the beginning part. He says, Husbands, love your wives. Look at verse number 28 of our text in chapter 5. Verse 28, he says, So ought men to love their wives. And then look down to verse number 33. He says, Let every one of you so love his wife as himself. I think it's pretty obvious. God is giving some very practical, pointed instruction to his people, and specifically the men. Husbands. And the husband, without question, is supposed to love his wife. And if we're, going to, if we're going to understand the needs that a wife has, we have to look at the responsibility that God has given to the husband. And that is to love the wife. And so the need of the wife is then that she be loved by her husband. I mentioned last week that the, the role of the wife is to submit herself to her own husband as unto the Lord. And That's politically incorrect, and you remember it has nothing to do with someone being lesser, a man or a woman being lesser than the other. It's not dependent upon education. It's not dependent upon experience. It's not depend, dependent upon intellect. It's not dependent, dependent upon any of those things. this this is the God-given plan for a God-honoring, successful, pleasurable, uh, heavenly marriage. It's what it is. Well, the role of the husband is to love his wife. Why? Because God created the woman with a need to be loved in a certain way. And when a husband is not saying yes to the Spirit of God, he's not loving his wife like Christ loves the church, and the wife is not being loved the way God created her with a need to be loved, and there are these, there's this failure within a marriage. So I, I want to look this morning, and I want to answer three questions from our passage. Number one, how should you love your wife? As a husband, how should you love your wife? Question number two will be, why should you love your wife? And number three, question number three will be, how long should you love your wife? I had a man come to me this past week, a friend of mine. He was been married over 60 years. And he said, Pastor, I just can't understand what is wrong with men. And I said, Okay, go ahead. He said, Why, what's wrong with men today? Why? Why don't they love their wives? And and he didn't mean for me to respond. And then he asked asked the question, he said, Don't they realize what they have? This man married over 60 years to the love of his his life. She passed away. And so it kind of hits home. Don't they realize what they have? In other words, you're not going to have this forever. So let's let's answer these three questions. First of all, how should you love your wife? Look at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I think to understand how you and I as husbands are to love our wives, we have to understand Christ's love. That's where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that's where God directs our attention. How should a husband love his wife? Because there's, there, and I've talked to you about this before, there are different kinds of loves. Uh, love. There, the Greeks had different words for different kinds of love. Eros, an erotic type of love. Phileo, brotherly love. Uh, agape. The one probably you're most familiar with, a sacrificial kind of love. And that's the word that's being used here in our passage for love. Agape, sacrificial love. And so we have to look at Christ's love. Look again at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved. And so I think of this as a husband. I'm supposed to love my wife the way Christ loved. That's the measuring. That's the standard that God sets for a husband. And to understand Christ's love is a supernatural undertaking. If, as a husband, I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved, then I need to know the love of Christ. And you remember back in chapter 3, I think it was in verse 19, where he said, uh, Know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. It's a weighty subject the love of Christ. And what Paul was saying is, I want you to experience the love of Christ. I want you to experience it, and I want you not only to experience it having received it, but I want you to experience what it is to give it. I want you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ the way that the Lord Jesus Christ has loved you. That's what God is saying to you and me. And so, understanding the love of Christ is... A difficult matter, but it really isn't difficult to understand Christ's love for us. It really isn't that difficult. Look again at verse 25. He says, and let it sink in. I'm reading it several times on purpose. He says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. What is a church? A church is a called out assembly of born again believers, an assembly. Believers assembled, born-again people who are assembled together. That's a church. It's not a non-profit, 501c3. It's not required to have a service or a platform or a steeple. Good thing we don't have one of those. It's not required to have a parking lot or a children's church. A church is a, a called-out assembly of born-again believers, and husbands are supposed to love their wives The way that Jesus Christ has loved the church and given himself for it. And so, as a husband, we can look a lot of places in an effort to find out what our wives need. The Bible is the best place to look. And it tells us what our wives need. It really tells us in this passage that our wives need sacrificial love. How should we love our wives? And I'll give you two reasons. One, love her sacrificially. And two, love her tenderly. Love her sacrificially. The evidence of biblical love is sacrifice. I want you to think about that. I'm going to say it again. The evidence of biblical love is measured by its cost. Now I'm not saying that you and I as husbands need to go out and buy the most expensive piece of jewelry that we can afford. Or put it on a credit card and give it to our wives. That is an inaccurate measurement of love. Now some of you ladies would say, well no, try it and find out. Let's go for it. The evidence of biblical love is evidenced or, or measured by cost. The evidence of biblical love is measured by cost. When God wants to show how much he loves us, he always reminds us to consider how much it cost him. Think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The measurement for God's love for mankind was that he was willing to give his only begotten son to die on the cross to save our souls from death and hell. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, but God commendeth, he showed his love toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God measures love by sacrifice. And you see this throughout the word of God. The evidence of Christ's love was his sacrifice. The evidence of our love for one another is our sacrifice for one another. And this is not just for a, a husband-wife relationship. This is true for our relationships with one another. Listen to John 13 and verse 35. Jesus said this to his disciples, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. By this, what I'm about to say, shall everybody know that you're truly followers of Jesus Christ. And here was the litmus test. If ye have love one for another. How are people going to know that you're a follower of Christ? By whether or not you love them. That's how. Do you love other believers? Do you love your fellow church members? Do you bear their burdens? By this shall all men know that ye are my followers, Christ said, if you love one another, if you're willing to sacrifice for one another. To some degree, it is a sacrifice to get up get up early on a Sunday morning and come into Sunday school. It is a sacrifice, I suppose, to some degree, to be faithful week in and week out. I suppose it is a sacrifice to come back on a Sunday night and gather together under the word of God. Uh, it's not much of a sacrifice, but I suppose you have to say no to other things to come. To, so I'm being transparent about that. I'm, I'm, I'm being honest about that, to come to gather together with other believers to, to hear someone else when they're not doing all that well. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one with the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In in other words, he says, when you see a brother or sister in Christ falling, struggling, you bear their burdens. And then in verse 2 of Galatians chapter 6, he says, uh, "So, so fulfill ye the law of Christ. You're fulfilling the law of Christ, which is the law of love. It is the law of sacrifice when you, put, when you and I put other people before ourselves. It's, it's, sim, it's a symbolic of love for one another when we're willing to sacrifice for one another. The evidence of your love is your sacrifice. Jesus Christ sacrificed much on the cross for his bride, didn't he? He sacrificed much on the cross for his church. He humbled himself when he hung in shame. He surrendered his friends when they you remember they forsook him and fled. He gave up all his relationships, especially the one he enjoyed the most, his the relationship with his heavenly Father. And he lost that source of joy when his Father turned his back on him, you remember. When he hung on the cross having taken the sins, our sins upon his shoulder. Christ loved the church so much that he let all he let go of all comfort and suffered as no man has suffered and ultimately he sacrificed his own life and 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us how do we know that God loves us how do we know that Christ loves us and the answer is he was willing to lay down his life for us. That is how we know He loves us. This is not the subject, the primary subject of our text, but it is within the context of the passage in the, the letter. But you know what? Trinity Baptist Church, as a local assembly of born again believers, ought to be oozing with sacrifice and love for one another. It really should. And to believers who are spirit-filled, the Spirit of Christ within us, do you think he leads us to love and sacrifice for one another? Or do you think he leads us to a life of leisure, comfort, pleasure for our flesh? Which one do you think? The Spirit of God within us leads us to. Which one? The first one. Without a doubt, the first one. Whew. The the ensemble saying, Faithful to the Cross. Jesus Christ was faithful to the cross. He knew what was coming. The disciples fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went a little further to pray by himself, and he prayed, Father, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. In other words, uh, it's like when Tori has to take some medicine, and she doesn't want to do it. She's such a good kid, but when it comes to medicine, it's like it's... It's sugary medicine. You remember the whole little song, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down? Come on, it shouldn't be that hard. This is loaded with it. Sugar, it's going to go down easy. No. You know, and in and, and, and a childish way, that illustrates Christ, he knew what was in that cup. The cup was dying on the cross, the cup was becoming sin for us. And he prayed and he said, Father, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, Christ lives within me. Christ has not changed. He is still selfless. There is still sacrifice that he leads me to make. And if I'm going to be a follower of my Lord and my Savior, if I'm going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm going to have to be faithful to the cross. I'm going to have to be faithful to say no to myself, And yes to God, and yes to his word, and yes to love and sacrifice. Ultimately, he sacrificed his own life for us. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And then John, the beloved of Christ, the Spirit of God makes the application and he says, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren speaking of one another i'm not i'm not reading into this i'm not making this up a spirit filled child uh, a spirit filled child of god a spirit filled believer loves god's people and sacrifices makes personal sacrifices for god's people that is not a popular message You know, God's given us gifts. He's given us, if if you're a child of God, he's given you a spiritual gift to be used for the benefit of the church, his body. God's created you, you have talents and abilities. And he wants to use you to edify, to build up. We We make a big deal of reaching out and evangelizing those who are lost. You know what I look out and I see in this room this morning, primarily, born people who were lost and I include myself in this people who were lost who have been saved who are at different stages of their spiritual walk with God some of us are babies we're toddlers we're kind of we don't know a whole lot about the Bible we're kind of stumbling and bumbling along and and others of us think we know it all you know don't worry dad I already know that and then there are others who have gotten past that stage you know and they're and, and they know what they don't know, and they know what the Bible is, and there's, there's, this, there's this discipline and this steadiness. But still, just, just sinners saved by the grace of God, saints, God calls us. All different, all different age groups. And you know what? God wants you, he wants to use you and me. This is his program. We have a lot of programs at Trinity Baptist Church, but you know what, I know, what the center of God's program is? That you and I would say yes to the Spirit of God and be used by God to encourage one another in our walk with God every day. And that includes sacrifice. It does. There's no way around it. I cannot follow the Lord Jesus Christ and not love and make sacrifices for God's people. And the application now, he draws to a point here in our passage because he's making application to a husband for, to, uh, uh, unto his wife. If we as God's people ought to make sacrifices for one another and love one another, he makes very specific application in this passage, then you as a husband and I as a husband, we as husbands ought to make sacrifices for our wives. That's the kind of love. That's how we should be loving our wives. So in our text, God has featured your wife as the one you should sacrifice for. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. I asked myself the question just yesterday, Seth, have you sacrificed for your wife lately? What have you sacrificed for your wife lately? It's not love that costs nothing. It's not love that costs nothing. I remember very clearly about four years ago going hunting with a friend of mine to the Upper Peninsula. There was no cell phone reception there. He'd been married to his wife about 60 years, and uh, half of the eight-hour drive up there was spent talking about our wives, how we met our wives. And the stories were different, but it was obvious very quickly in the conversation how much this man, older than me, having lived a lot, lot longer than I had, how much this man loved his wife. We got up there, and we were hunting, set up our deer camp, you know, and we, we went out and scouted. And, and each evening while we were there, we'd have to walk up the hill and get out our little cell phones and call our wives back home. And you know what? We, I, I, I'll never forget it because I, I love hearing Cindy's voice. I like to hear how her day went, if it went well. As long as the kids were well-behaved. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> you know and, and he wanted to call his wife. And it, it were almost, we were almost giddy. You know, we'd eaten, we were almost giddy. We'd wander out into the dark in the Upper Peninsula. There's nothing around. You can hear things running through the woods around you. You can't see anything, you know, but you walk out in the woods and you call your wife. And it was like, the, and we were laughing together because it was like the highlight of every day was calling our wives. We did it each day. Go stand out in the snow and call our wives. This particular gentleman, a friend of mine, as his wife grew older and was unable to care for herself the way she had, I can remember he would do her hair to bring her to church on Sunday. He'd do her makeup. Cindy, if that ever comes to that, I'm going to need some help, okay? (laughs) You better prepare me early on. But... I, and I had I, never pondered this before, frankly. Maybe you, you never have either, but I pondered what he was doing for his wife. He knew how she liked to look. So he would do all that he could to make her presentable the way she liked to be presentable. Even as she was losing the ability to do those things for herself, he was doing that for her. Making the meals for her. Doing the things she could not do for herself. Making personal sacrifices for his wife you know, when we think about this idea of loving our wives, it, there is sacrifice involved. We're to lay down our lives, men, for our wives. In the Old Testament, King David was going to offer a burnt offering to the Lord. And a friend of David's, off, uh, he, he came to David and he, and he said, let me, I'll, I'll provide that for you. I'll provide the threshing floor for you. I'll provide the oxen for your sacrifice. And th- I think the friend of David, I think he was well-meaning, But David answers him, and I think it's very telling. In in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 24, David answers his friend and he says, uh, uh, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. Do you see the picture there? David says, I'm going to make a sacrifice unto God, but I'm not going to make a sacrifice unto God that costs me nothing, because that isn't true love. Love costs something. And so David bought the threshing floor, and he bought the oxen. You see, there's no sacrificial love where there's not sacrifice. Our culture today says love is is that eros, it's that erotic, and that is a type. Or, Or love is that feeling. But you and I both know those feelings come and go. Love, biblical love, the kind of love that a husband is to have for his wife is a sacrificial love, And the greatest evidence of love is not what we feel or what we get from another person. It's what we give. And there are times in marriage when we're called upon to make sacrifices for our wives, men. And when we do, it demonstrates to her how much we love her. And don't forget the opportunity for you to demonstrate that love, the love of Christ. You're not going to always have that opportunity. Just as Christ's gifts of love have strengthened our church, so will the gifts of love from a husband to his wife strengthen that marriage. How does, uh, how, does, uh, how does God expect a husband to love his wife sacrificially? Well, he wants us to cherish her. Look, look there at verse 28 and 29. He says, So it men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Two wonderful words in verse 29, nourisheth and cherisheth. Nourish, nourish, to nourish something, to to nurture it. William, God, he planted a seed in kindergarten this year. I don't know what the seed is, but it sprouted. It looks like a weed. Okay. It sprouted. And it doesn't grow fast. Very slow. Well, So it was in a paper cup, styrofoam cup, on his window in his bedroom. It was a miracle it didn't fall on the floor, you know, and go everywhere. But he'd water it every once in a while and it would grow and grow. And then we planted the garden and, and William, Cindy had William plant it in the garden. And Grandma was over the other day and William said, now Grandma, this is not a weed. This is a, plant or a flower or something. Don't pull it. In the mornings, you can see William running from the house, still in his shorts, nothing but his shorts on, from the house to the garden with a thing of water in his hand, you know, running out to nourish his plant. Drown it. That's the other word. It's still alive. It's a miracle. But you know what? You know what? that is valuable to, to William. He cares for it. He's, he's protective of it. He wants to make sure it has adequate water and whatever it needs. It is important to him. He's nourishing that. It's important to him. We as husbands are to be nourishing our, our wives. We're to be taking care of our wives. The other word is cherish. And the word cherish has the idea of protecting something that is of great value like a chicken gathering her chicks under her wings and that is the word picture of the word cherisheth it, there's a, a softness there there's a warmth there to protect those baby chicks from the elements and your wife and my wife needs that kind of love and that needs to come from you as a husband and me as a husband she wants to feel your warmth she wants to feel your protection. You might be here this evening or this morning and say, you know, Pastor Seth, I'm just not that kind of a guy. I'm not a nourishing, cherishing kind of guy. You know, I bring home the bacon and that's just the way it is. I'm just, you know, I don't say those things. I don't. You know what? Then you need to change some things in your life, sir. You need to be conformed to what God says in his word. And you can, you can. You cherish your wife when you treat her tenderly, when you seek to understand her. Did you just roll your eyes when I said seek to understand her? You say, I've given up on understanding her. No, I think people have blown that out of proportion. Men and women are different. I don't doubt that. I know that. But people are different. Have you been around people lately? I mean, men are different. Women are different. We, we all are different people. We don't do things the same way. We don't think the same way. And it would make perfect sense that your spouse would not think exactly like you do about things or respond to certain things the, the same way that you do. But, you know, as a husband, you and I are literally commanded by God to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. We're to get to understand our wives. It's something we're commanded to do. God holds us responsible to understand our wife, and it's so important to God that He actually tells us that He answers prayer or does not answer prayer for a husband dependent on upon how a husband, that husband, seeks to understand and dwell with his wife according to knowledge. Peter talked about this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Get to know her. And you should never stop seeking to know her. God places a high value upon uh, uh, your wife. When we value something, we get to know the details of it, don't we? You got that sports car in your garage; you know everything about it. It's valuable to you. That sports team—some of us, we 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 know all about these things. People, people, men that we've never met before and never will meet. <laughs> we see them on a screen, and we know all about them. Do you know your wife? Your wife has tremendous value. Proverbs 31 verse 10 says, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? And the word virtuous means a woman that's living morally pure. Who can find a woman like that because her price is far above rubies? Our society says that a man should find a beautiful woman. Or a shapely woman. Or a talented woman. Or a brilliant woman. Or a personable woman. But God values a virtuous woman. And says her price is far above rubies. And by the way, when he says they're a virtuous woman, it's not so much an emphasis on the past morality, but but an emphasis on the present. And by that, I mean this. If a woman or a man has failed morally in the past, you can receive forgiveness from God and you can live morally and God-honoring in the present. And and if, sir, you have a woman who is living morally morally, Virtuously in the present, her price is far, her value is far above rubies. And you ought to value her. Do you value what God values? That's really the question for us as men and husbands in this room. Do you love what God loves because the soul of our wives is more, uh, worth more than the whole world? Mark 8 and verse 36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You see, your wife is more valuable than your career, sir. Her life is more valuable than all the gold in this world and all the silver and all the diamonds and all the real estate and all the stocks and bonds and all the other assets that every millionaire, businessman, or corporation has ever owned. Your wife is more valuable than all of that. As I was studying and thinking about these words and how I'm supposed to nourish and cherish my wife. You know what struck me so vividly is the value that God places upon my wife. And I must value her the way He values her. You see, your wife's soul is more valuable than all these things. And do we understand how valuable our wives are to God? That's the question. The value of a possession is established by the owner. And you and I, as husbands, don't own our wives. God does. So he is the one who establishes her worth and her value. This past week, I think it was the week before, I was over at Home Depot picking up some Roundup for our ball field and the weeds that never die. And I was coming out from the garden section, and this fella in his 60s wheeled up next to my truck in a 1981 Porsche 911 red. Sounded great. He got out, and, and you know, it's a nice car when you have to grunt that much to get out of it because <laughs> it's so low, you know. He's basically sitting on the, on the asphalt. Whew. He clambered out of the thing and he walked past me, and I said, That's a nice car, sir. He said, Yeah. I said, What year is it? 80, 1981? He said, I bought it brand new. He said, I've had it for all these years. He said, It's, it's a lot of fun to drive. I said, yeah. I put my Roundup in the back of my truck. And he walked away. I jumped in the truck. I pulled out my phone. I said, 1981, Porsche 911. Up popped the numbers. The cheapest one I found was about $43,000. That had over 100,000 miles on it. The most expensive one I found was over $100,000. For 1981, Porsche 911. I thought, well, that's a nice car. <laughs> and that's where that ends. <laughs> but you know what? That guy's not selling that car. It doesn't matter if I had $75,000 and said, hey, I'll give you $75,000 for that car. He's had that car since 1981. That car belongs to him. It is valuable to him. Have you ever watched the, one of those, those shows, uh, something, Pickers? You, they go around and, and wade through other people's junk. Have you ever watched that? Yeah. I don't watch it. I, I've seen it a couple times, but I always enjoy it because you know they go into this person's house and sometimes it's a house, sometimes it's a barn or a shed. And in one particular one, I'll, I'll never forget, the guy goes into the, he goes into the shed and they're literally up to their waist. I mean, they're literally wallowing around in this junk and the guy's like, what do you want for that sign? And the guy's like, oh, I can't part with that sign. What do you want for that? Oh, I could never part with that. What do you want for that? And I'm, you know, I'll give you this. No, it couldn't get rid of that. I'm like, yes, you could. Look, you'd never even know it was gone. I mean, you, you shouldn't go in there without like a life support team to see that you get out. But, but we put a value on things. And you know what, men? We, we need to put the right value on our wives. Eternal value. The value that God gives to our wives. Why, sh- why should we love our wives? Look at verse 26 and 27. He says that, ye, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, in these, past- these two verses, he's talking about Christ and what Christ has provided with the- for the church, what Christ has longed to accomplish in the church that he loves so much what his sacrifice, what his love has provided for the church. And I submit to you that these verses are not only for the church, but also for the wife. Why should you and I love our wives, sir? And this may sound like a silly question, but I I think there are many selfish reasons for men to love their wives. And Christ's reason for loving the church reveals, I think, the highest motive in love. And he answers the question, and it answers the question, why should you love your wife? And the answer is to sanctify her. Some of us have in our minds that our wife exists to serve us and to do our will and our bidding. Uh, Not all of us. I suppose there might be some. Some of us almost have just kind of grown complacent to the point where, you know, our wife, she just does her laundry and she makes sure the meals are always there. And she's always there. She's always faithful. And, you know, that's just a sick, sad, disgusting way to to have that relationship. It's not to be that way. She is valuable. You ought to love her. But there's a motive for why you ought to love your wife. And it is a high and holy calling and a high and holy motive. And you know what that is? You, sir, In the position, in the role of the leader in the home, have a responsibility given by God to love your wife with the motive, according to this passage, to lead her to be godly to such a degree that someday when your wife stands before the Lord Jesus Christ and gives an account for her life and how she's lived her life on this earth, that she could hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant. And men, you are leaders. And I, we've joked before about uh you know leadership and 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 and, and we could think of it in this way with men, you know, who likes you know't you know, want to be known as Holy Joe or you know uh, uh, I can't think of an S but standard Steve, you know or whatever, something like that. We don't want to be known as that. We want to be known as fun. Whatever you want to do goes. you know with our children, we face that, you know, oh, they really want to do it. oh, I don't want them to be weird, just let them go for it, you know. And and sometimes parents do that. And sometimes that can lead to very poor parenting. And you know what? Sometimes husbands, you and I can face the same thing. And we're responsible before God to love our wives sacrificially and to lead her to sanctification. And that's what those verses are talking about. Why should we love our wives? And the answer is look at Christ's example. The example found in the text in verses 26 and 27 that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of water by the word. And that happens with the word of God when we gather together and we read it. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You see, Christ loved and he still loves the church. Because he wants to sanctify it. He still gives and provides for us because he wants to sanctify us. And the word sanctify means to set apart for a very special purpose. And just as Christ was willing to sacrifice, just as Christ was willing to love for the spiritual needs of, for, of you and me, every one of us in this room, so is every husband commanded by God to love, to sacrifice for the spiritual benefits of his wife. As as I've studied this this week, I thought to myself, I don't know how many of us think this way as husbands. And you know, we really, uh, we're loving our wives when we're helping her to be set aside for the special purpose of pleasing God and doing His will. Not looking like the world. Not being worldly. But loving her Sacrificially with eternity in mind, not just for today, not just pleasing her, not just helping. And those things certainly would be true if if, if we're loving our wives like Christ loves the church. We'll be taking care of her needs in this life. We'll be protecting her. We'll be loving her. Certainly that's true in this life. But God is saying you ought to love your wives in such a way in this life that you set her up well for eternity. You see, you love her when you help her to be sanctified, set apart unto God. Like the church, a called out assembly of believers, God desires that your wife become more and more like Jesus Christ. And and I thought to myself, Seth, am I the example that I ought to be? Husband, sir, are you the example you ought to be to your wife, an example that she can follow? And if she does follow your lead, is she going to be more like Christ? or is she going to be more like the world? Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Are you leading your wife to be Christ-like? There's a story of of a prince who was deformed, and he couldn't stand upright. And the prince commissioned an artist to bring a block of marble into his courtyard, and to place that block of marble in his courtyard and to begin to hew out of that block of marble a statue, a likeness of the prince. And the the artist did that. But the statue of the prince was not deformed and bent over, but it was standing straight and erect, tall. And the story is told how the prince walked in and he looked at the statue and those around him witnessed as he backed himself up to the statue and he strained to stand up tall with his back up against the statue, and he couldn't. And he went away, and he came back the next day, and he did it again. And he would do it several times a day throughout the day, in the weeks, and the months. And finally, there came a day where he walked into the statue. He turned around, and he backed up to it, and he stood up as tall as he could, and his head touched the back of the head of the statue, and his shoulder to the back of the shoulder blades of the statue. He was conformed to the image of that statue. As God's people, you and I are to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8. As husbands, you and I are to lead our wives to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm telling you, this is true love. This is sacrificial love as this passage lays it out for us. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. It is God's will. And so, loving your wife with the motive of sanctifying her is to help her to look at Christ, to study Christ, to compare herself to Christ in every way that she can, so that she can gradually be conformed to His image. And I want you to know to help your wife become more like Christ is the highest, most noble motive for love that there is. It is true selflessness. It's looking at your wife and saying, you know what, my wife doesn't exist to serve me. God has entrusted her into my care and she is so valuable to him. And I'm going to love her sacrificially all the days of my life as God gives me the power to do it. And that's by the filling of his spirit. And I'm going to put God's desire for my wife over my desire for my wife. I'm going to love her sacrificially. This is totally unworldly, what we're talking about here. How long should we love our wives? Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. He's talking about the union of marriage. First talked about back in Genesis chapter 2, talked about in Matthew and Mark, I believe, and, uh, and, and to the church at Corinth, the same words. Verse 32 says, this is a great mystery, and I, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. How long should you as a husband love your wife? The Bible teaches that love faileth not, that love suffereth long. You know that marriages today barely outlast the echoes of the so-called vows? It's popular in our day for a husband to, Or a wife to trade in their spouse for a fresh one, like trading in an old car for a new one. You know, I think to understand how long a husband ought to love his wife, we have to think about the word love for just a moment. And I'm going to read to you a part of a passage in the Bible about love. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, that charity suffereth long. This goes for both husbands and wives, but the context of our passage is husbands. Charity, sacrificial love, suffers long and is kind, gentle. Charity, sacrificial love, envieth not. It doesn't burn with envy and hatred and anger. Charity, sacrificial love, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, it's not big-headed. It doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And it says, charity, sacrificial love, never faileth. And husbands, you and I are commanded by God to love our wives sacrificially. It is a high calling that every husband that I've ever known, including myself, has failed at at times. But I want you to know it is attainable and it is doable no matter how we've lived our lives and not loved in the past or the many times that we have failed. And husbands, we know and and there's shame in our hearts for how many times we have. And and we think about the value of what God has given us in our wives. And yet, men, it is possible to love our wives like Christ loves the church sacrificially for the right reasons when you and I will say yes to the Spirit of God. I'll close with this. In Romans chapter 8, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. He's talking about believers who suffer for the Lord. He says, We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And then he says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then Paul says this. Clint, you read this this past week. Do you remember it? You want to come up and read it, or do you want me to take it? Okay. He says, For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the way we're supposed to love our wives. You say, Pastor, you don't know what she's done. I know. You're to love her sacrificially. You say, Pastor, she's not submissive. I'm a broken man. I think she hates my guts. She may. You need to love her. You say, Pastor, I have the most wonderful wife in the world. She's put up with so much. And I have not loved her like Christ loves the church, and she deserves so much better. And by the grace of God, say yes to the Spirit of God and love her sacrificially with whatever life you have left. And when you fail and when you and I fall, and we do, you ask her to forgive you and you say, Honey, forgive me for not loving you the way I ought. Pray pray for me. I want to love you the way Christ loves us. Set that as your standard and set that as your goal. And I want you to leave with this thought because love never faileth. The love of Christ, if you will love your wife like Christ loves the church, will conquer anything that this world can throw at your marriage and hell itself. And that's what he just said in that passage that I just read. There is nothing that the love of Christ cannot overcome. And he wants you to love your wife. Truly, God wants to love your wife through you. Every wife needs to be loved. And every husband is responsible to love. I was looking at our marriage vows the other day, the vows that are so easily cast aside. I, Seth, take you, Cindy, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. It's these words, the words of this passage. Till death do us part. And you said, I do. For better or for worse, sickness and in health, richer, poorer, to love and to cherish. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. Father, I pray for husbands in this room. Lord, I ask for myself that we would love our wives the way Christ, the way you've loved us. Father, I, I take full responsibility for my love for my wife. Lord, I want to be a better husband. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for the ladies in this room. Lord, I pray that you protect us, put up a hedge of protection about us as men in our marriages. For marriages that are broken, Father, I pray that they'd be restored. Lord, I pray that you'd do it supernaturally in a way that nobody could take any glory away from you. Lord, I pray that we'd not take our eyes off of what you desire and what you want. I pray that we'd be content with nothing less than your best. And Father, I pray that you'd have mercy and give us godly marriages in this congregation wives submitting, husbands loving, and cherishing. And I'll praise you for it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.